Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. I think we can all agree that growing your email list is hard, but it's also one of your most important assets. Speaking from experience here, it's frustrating just waiting for your email list to grow without running a bunch of ads or using spammy tactics, and that's why I started using Sparkloop. Instead of hoping to get some word of mouth referrals from subscribers, why don't you just equip and incentivize them to share your newsletter with others? Now, my newsletter growth is basically on autopilot thanks to them. Check them out at sparkloop.app/eim. You can find the link in the show notes and tell them I sent you. On the show today is Steph Smith. Steph is the head of product for Trends, which is a membership site for entrepreneurs under The Hustle. And previously, she did content marketing for TopTel and is also the author of Doing Content Right, which did over $40,000 in sales in the first month of launching. I wanted to bring her on because Steph really knows her stuff when it comes to content marketing. She's done it for SaaS companies, marketplaces, newsletters, communities, and even herself. She's also a fantastic example of how to build in public the right way. So listen in on how she applies lessons learned playing chess as a kid and being a chemical engineer as an adult to being a marketer and leader today, what the keys to her successful book launch were, and a Black Friday and Cyber Monday email that generated over seven figures in annual recurring revenue literally overnight. To start, did you ever think that you'd be working in marketing and in tech for a living? No, definitely not. I mean, I've always actually really loved science, like the pure sciences, I guess you could say. And uh, marketing definitely was never something that, um, at least in its traditional form, as you hear of marketing, if you were to you know, take a marketing degree, I never thought I'd be in this field. And tech also came as a surprise that just kind of happened um, throughout the course of, of different experiences that I've engaged in. Hmm. Well, one of the things uh, I want to get back to sort of what you did, and we can kind of like make a couple of bus stops along your career. But um, one of the things that stood out that you haven't talked about a lot elsewhere is your experience basically traveling the world playing chess. Did you like, how did that start? How long did you do it for? Um, What was that like? Yeah. So it started really young to the point where I don't actually remember learning chess. (laughs) I think it must've been when I was (laughs) like five or something. I'm not sure. Cause I don't actually, I was watching, everyone's been watching the queen's gambit recently and i was actually teaching my boyfriend like as he's never played before he doesn't know the rules so i was like oh like a pawn can move one space or two spaces if it's the first move but after that it's only one i'm I'm explaining all these rules and i'm like wow i don't even remember the time when i learned these rules i just know them because i learned so young so i started really really young and then um both my sister and i played um at the national level in canada and you know, we didn't do that much international travel, but we went to a couple of world championships and um, did that until I think I quit pretty early when I was around 12, but I was really good for, for a 12 year old. Um, and so now I haven't played in years, but I've actually recently got into it again um, just because, you know, of all the hype recently. But yeah, I played when I was really young for, I guess, maybe seven years or so. Wow. Yeah. So you quit while you're still at top of the game, right? You quit while you're, uh, while so. you're still up. <laughs> what, what did you learn? Um, like playing, like, what did it teach you playing chess as a kid, uh, traveling around, like being, I mean, you said you learned so early that you don't even remember learning, but what do you feel like you took away from it now? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I love answering. I've been asked this a lot recently and I love answering it because 
I think there are many things in life that are hard to parse lessons from because they're so amorphous or they're so intertwined with other things. And it's hard to separate, um, you know, something there with the rest of your life, like a relationship. There's so many, you know, intricacies of it versus chess. It's, it's a, it's a complicated game, but it's a very, you know, it's a very uh, segmented game in the sense like you go to the game, you show up, someone wins, someone loses, there is no luck involved. Um, and so looking back, I think there's a lot that I learned um, from playing chess at a young age. And to name a couple things, the first is that, like I said, there's no luck, which means that you show up to the game and the best player wins. And the interesting thing, if you've ever played chess from like an absolute beginner to a more advanced level, you see how many games it truly takes for you to start winning and start getting better. And with chess, there's a rating system. So you can literally kind of quantify your progress. Um, and so uh, right. a lot of people who haven't played chess competitively don't know that, and you see this in the show, if you play competitively, you have a coach, you sit down and you assess games before and after, you choose openings, you study, you read books, like you have you have so many things that help you get better, similar to, you know, if you're trying to be a great football player, for example, and um, you can actually see the investment that you put in come out because again, there's no luck. So you can actually say, oh, I like I studied for like this amount of time and now my rating is X. And so I think it really taught me to see the world in a little bit more of an objective way of just, you know, there's very few things now that I see um, in terms of things being too difficult or impossible, because I just know that if you start somewhere and you invest a lot of time into something, irrespective of the luck that happens in other, you know, uh, endeavors, you will advance. And so chess really, really instilled in me that like hard work wins and the best player mm -hmm. wins. Another part of it, which I think is really important is this concept with chess. So if, if you played chess before, white has the advantage right? But you go into a chess game, you don't know if you're going to be white or black. Well, you know, once you start, but you it's it's random or it's determined by the way that the tournament is, is organized. And so as you show up to the board, sometimes you're white and sometimes you're black. And sometimes when you're black, you still win. And sometimes when you're white, you still lose. And the idea is again, that um, sometimes you can't control, you know, what goes your way. And that's the same lesson in life. But there are things that are within your control and you, at least with chess, you become empowered to control what you, you can. And that includes not just the fact that you're white or black, but again, if you're playing competitive chess, you literally, you study your opponent. You say, I know that they typically play this white opening. My best, you know, response is this black opening, for example. And you really, again, you learn to take what you can control, optimize for that. And there's no complaining. There's no excuses. And I think that really taught me at an early age, this concept um, that I've attributed to other things in my life. And just to finally tack on to that, the other thing that was really interesting for me in particular was that I, me and my sister played when we were very young and we were female and we were playing at an early age against people who were like, like, I remember games that would last like three hours and I'm sitting across the table from like a 50 year old man. And so it really <laughs> was this amazing concept where it really just like broke down. There are biases within the chess, I guess, industry or space right but within the game itself there's no bias and i think all of those things were really instrumental in me just viewing the world in a different way where just like chess the world is complicated there are things you can't control but there are things you can control and if you really put in um, regimented effort you will see yourself advancing no matter what yeah that's interesting uh, i thought it was interesting that there's there's kind of a um 
a dichotomy of like, once you're in the game, there's absolutely no luck. But when you start, either you're either you sort of randomly chosen as white or black or based off of some sort of uh, ranking system, right? But that's like kind of the only piece of luck involved. Everything else is just completely objective uh, according to your skill and your talent and your strategy of the way that you're opening or defending or, uh, you know, I picked up some of the terms like middle game, end game, right? Yeah, I think that exactly. makes a little bit more sense now to me, but um, really through it, uh, is that what, what you think sort of drew you to what you call the, the hard sciences? Um, or what was it that really got you into something like chemical engineering, which is a very, uh, you know, not everyone wants to go into that industry. Yeah, I think so. When I think back, I mean, I've always, from a really young age, loved maths and sciences way more than, it's funny because some people consider me a writer now. I've always struggled with writing. I've <laughs> always struggled with the arts. Um, and so I don't know if that was from chess or I've just, maybe it was actually opposite that I adhered to chess because I was always more analytical. It's hard to say. But chess definitely through studying it and this, again, this like really regimented, like one-to-one -one relationship of like, this is how the game works. And if you study this and you learn to plan ahead and forecast moves and all this stuff, like you get better. And that kind of analytical quantitative thinking has always uh, resonated with me more. And so going into mm -hmm. university or, or later on, it was always to me a no brainer of like, I'm gonna go into some sort of sciences. It was either pure sciences or engineering. I ended up in engineering, but that's why to your first question, did you ever think you'd be in marketing? It's interesting to see that marketing these days is a lot more quantitative. And that's why right. I think I ended up here and I'm happy about it, but I never would have forecasted that because I've always just adhered more to things that I can measure and move and, and feel like I have a grasp on. Hmm. Do you feel like, um, you know, you, you didn't actually work as a chemical engineer, but you got a chemical engineering degree, right? Was there anything else that you learned or took from that that you still learn today, you know, as a, as a marketer, also as the head of product for, for trends? I mean, it's a great question. I think science is so interesting and the actual, I mean, the specifics of a chemical engineering degree, you learn like how to size a pipe with fluid dynamics or how to like use organic chemistry to like come up with new materials for like one summer, I, I came up with new materials for like LCDs. So there's so many interesting mm -hmm. things, but none of that I'm going to like, I'm never going to use that specific knowledge. But the one thing that is universal in the way I think, and is I think something that I would love for more people to understand is the scientific method. And what a lot of people don't understand about the scientific method is most people think that the scientific method is trying to uh, prove something to be true when in fact the scientific method is actually trying to falsify things, right? Nothing in this world is true. Um, and the only thing that we know is that things, certain things have been falsified. And the more certain things become falsified, the more likely something else is true. And the reason that I think this is really important, even outside of science in the way that I view the world and I wish more people would view the world is that we're very quick, especially with, you know, <laughs> politics going on recently, very quick to see things as black and white, but the scientific method actually helps shine a light that everything is gray. Everything that we know, if you've studied science, you know, even in middle school, they teach you like, Hey, like, this is how people thought the, you know, atom worked. And then they realized, Oh, actually, like we taught you this in grade eight. Well, in grade nine, we're actually gonna tell you all of that was false. Now here's what we know. And then, you know, in grade 10, same thing. And so it's amazing to really, if you really digest the scientific method, you are internalizing this idea that I think something might be true, but I'm okay with this, you know, margin of error or this understanding that I, 
I don't know for sure if it's true and I can only falsify things. And so that, that idea of shades of gray, I think is really important. And I just wish more people would work more to falsifying things versus trying to just say everything is true. The more you can wrap your head around that, I think the more we can have productive conversations in the world. Yeah, that, that's an interesting concept because I think um, as a marketer, uh, you know, experiments and trying to quantify things, um, most of the time, I think that I'm, I'm not the only one. Uh, I'm trying to prove something is right of here's, you know, I think this strategy is going to work. Let me go try the strategy out and then try to prove that it's going to work. And it's, it's a little bit hard to switch your thinking to think, um, I think this strategy could work. I'm going to try it and see how I can prove it to not work basically, right? Or I'm going to basically uh, run through as many experiments as I can in order to rack up as many sort of, you know, losses or failures or, or, or learning moments, quote unquote, right? Um, which can be a hard pill to swallow. Like, have you, have you struggled with that at all of um, actually implementing that in real life within, uh, within your day-to-day job as a marketer or, you know, even just within the business in general? Yeah. So I think that marketing is interesting because again, sometimes it's misinterpreted in the sense that you are trying to prove like, is this campaign good or bad, or does this work or not? But at the same time, it's the same idea where something can, you're really with a campaign, you're trying to see like, is this, is this better than what I know already? You're not saying this is going, this is the end all be all, this works or this doesn't. You're saying, oh, I'm A-B testing these things. Which one is better? And that doesn't mean there's not an even better option out there, or it doesn't mean that both of them could technically fail based on your ROI. And so I think just, again, like viewing things in general, whether it's marketing, whether it's pure sciences, whether it's the way we engage with politics, everything is everything. I think everything is more productive if A, you understand that nothing is an absolute truth um, and B, that you are going to be wrong a lot of the time, which I think is especially true in marketing. And I've learned that. I remember when I first started in growth, I thought, as I think a lot of people in growth, like, oh, I totally know what like headlines people are going to click on. I think this ad is absolutely going to crush it. And I was wrong so much. And I think that was actually a really great experience to see like very early in that marketing you know, experience of mine that I was wrong a lot of the time and that really marketing does need to come with some sort of quantitative testing. Yeah. And, and the goal objectively being like, we want to get to the best result, right? Or we want to get to the best campaign. We want to know which channels uh, work and work most efficiently. It's not necessarily of just um, sort of failing or, or proving things wrong just for the sake of proving them wrong. But like you said, so that you get closer to the truth. Um, and something you said earlier was, you know, everything is uh, gray area. And speaking of gray area, you went from chemical engineering to management consulting or what, what was that jump exactly? Yeah, exactly. It was basically management consulting. So think of like Deloitte or McKinsey, the equivalent of that, but a more boutique uh, Toronto firm. Hmm. What, what made you decide to go that route? Well, so I did my degree in chemical engineering and I loved it. Like I still, to this day, I think if I ever leave marketing or pure tech, I will go in back into the pure sciences, hmm. but if you take a chemical engineering degree, um, your prospects after that are likely, obviously not entirely, but very likely oil and gas related or working at some sort of, for example, chemical plant or something like that. Um, and I did not want to do that. Um, and I think that I also, so throughout university, I had done academic research in every summer. So I did three or four stints of it. I did a summer on battery research, a summer on like civil engineering research, LCDs that I mentioned. I did a summer in forensics and academia is so interesting as well, but the issue 
maybe not issue there, but for me is it moves very, very slowly and it's very narrow. Like you're focusing on one Mm. very specific thing. Something that I've always known about myself is I love quantitative things as we've talked about. I love being analytical, but I also love being creative and I also love exploring. And you don't get that within academia and you definitely don't get it if you're working in oil and gas, at least in in the route that I potentially could have taken. And so for me, it was like, okay, what, what's another option? And at least in Canada, a lot of uh, firms, these management consulting firms will hire engineers because they, they just know that with an engineering degree, you've basically been uh, tested on whether you can problem solve, which is like mm. a core competency of consulting. And so that's the only reason I went into consulting. I didn't know much about it. It was relatively uh, good pay compared to you know other routes that I could have taken. And so I just kind of fell into it, to be honest. Um, but that's also why I kind of fell out of it pretty quickly right. <laughs> um, in that it had a lot of the things that I mentioned where it's analytical, I loved, that's where I fell in love with Excel, (laughs) which I've written about, but uh, it was, you know, a little too bureaucratic and stuff like that. So that's why I ended up pivoting from that as well. Hmm. And then from there you went to TopTel, is that right? Yes. Yeah. So tell me like, what what was that like starting at TopTel? What was your role there? So yeah, I started there on the growth team as we called like a growth lead, which just meant there was the way that they structured the team. There was different business units and I was running at least from a growth perspective, I was responsible for growing that business unit. Um, And so that also was kind of, it's funny because if you really talk through my career, it can be positioned either as like, you really didn't know what you wanted to do or like, (laughs) oh, this is like a very intentional like design of Hmm. my life. And I think it was partially both, right? Like I didn't know what I wanted to do. There was aspects that I did know I wanted to control or I did know I wanted in these roles. And for me at that time, it was like, again, I really wanted to be analytical, but I wanted to explore more. And this role kind of after many, many months of looking for fully remote jobs, which was important to me, this happened to be offered to me. And uh, I got, I think, really lucky, to be honest, because I knew basically nothing about marketing at that time. Huh. What, what attracted you to the role in the first place? Um, at a company like TopTel, which is tech, which is a new industry in a growth role, which is also a very sort of um, new kind of like undefined uh, category of a job. Um, So it's a pretty big leap of faith to start at something like that. Yeah. So I didn't know that much about the company other than they were fully remote. They were growing quickly. And um, from what I understood about growth, which again, wasn't actually that much. It was just it was kind of the combination of the things I was interested in. So it was analytical. It was at this company that was growing quickly. So there was a lot of opportunity to get my hands in different things and experience um, or learn a lot at the company. And at the time, my focus was really just that, like, how can I find a place that I'm going to learn a lot? And I had already learned from that point that pivoting in your career, whether it's like through my degree or consulting or whatever is okay. And I was kind Mm. of resolved about the fact that if this doesn't work, then I'll find something else. But that actually did end up sticking. I ended up loving it. That first eight months or so at TopTal, I learned probably the bulk of what I've learned in marketing overall. And it was so Mm. much fun because I, again, I just, it was a small company, small enough where I was just involved in every possible avenue of growth that, you know, you can imagine. Yeah. What, what were some of the projects like that you worked on? Well, I mean, literally everything from like referral programs to obviously paid media, SEO, like just any, any sort of growth tactic we were involved versus now I've worked on teams that are much more, um, I guess you could say narrowly focused in, in that, oh, this one company 
tends to bring in acquisition from just paid media and that's all they focus on. We were involved in everything at TopTal, which was amazing um, mm. to get that experience early on. And it was so hands-on. Um, and I would have to say that a couple of the people who um, worked on that team were like still to this day, the best growth marketers that I've ever worked with. Hmm. Wow. And, uh, eventually you moved on and sort of, um, started leading up the publications team, right. Which is a, also a sort of another pivot a little bit going away from that quantitative more towards the content side of things. Um, like how did your, how did your role evolve over time and why make that switch over to the publication team? Yeah. So I think it's funny because the more, as I'm telling the story and I've told it before, but in this time in particular, it really sounds like I just kind of like fell into these decisions, but there was thought <laughs> around them. But at the time for this case, I had been working at Top Shelf for like a year and a half or maybe almost two years on the growth team. And as part of that, I had started working with the publications team um, on their growth efforts because those were two mm. separate teams. And um, I had started working with them on that. And the person who was leading the team at the time no longer wanted to lead the team. Um, and so he actually wanted to stay on the team, he ended up staying on the team. He just didn't want to lead it anymore. And I had been working with him and he actually had like proposed that I take the role to the, oh, wow. you know, like the leaders of the company. And I, at the time, wasn't even sure. I was like publication, like I'm not, again, I'm not a writer. I <laughs> like, I don't know that much about publications, but he really, really thought I could do it. And it's funny because the same thing happened recently at the hustle where both times I have moved up to kind of like lead teams with someone else actually um, kind of suggesting it. So maybe I hmm. should step up more on my, on my own, it sounds like, but that was really it. And then I was like, wow, this sounds like a pretty interesting opportunity. I get to lead a team of like 20 people, which I've never done. Um, so it had it, its own set of new challenges. Um, and so, yeah, that that's honestly why I ended up taking that role. Hmm. So it, it turned for a little bit more uh, like managerial and leadership, I would assume, right? With 20 people under you, like how much are you actually doing day-to-day, -day, you know, uh, writing and or um, producing for that part of the business? Yeah, so at TopTel, I did not write at all, but I was really involved in, again, the growth of that team, as in like, how do we actually increase our page views or whatever our key metrics are? Um, so I've never been, just because I like getting my hands dirty, I've never been the type of manager that, just goes and delegates everything. Like, in fact, that's why after my time at TopTal, I ended up going back into an IC role because I love mm. doing things. So at the time, I certainly was not writing, but I was pretty deeply involved in like the day-to-day -day operations. Hmm. What, what exactly is the publications team? Like, is that a, a fancy word for like um, the blog or multiple blogs or are there other sorts of mediums or formats involved? So for uh, top tell, it was six blogs by the time I left. Yeah. So wow. it was, it was only, we called it publications because blogs tend to have an, a slightly negative connotation or people misunderstand them, but the top tell publications started right. At least the first one started right when top tell started. And so they had been growing that thing for like five to, I can't remember the exact amount, five to seven years by the time I took it over. Um, and then by the time I took it over, I think there was three publications. So I was involved in launching three more. Um, and so it was, yeah, the whole, the, the 20 people were involved in anything from, a lot of them were obviously involved in writing the content, but also distributing it, doing SEO for the content, things like that. Hmm. What, what, what actually is involved in growing uh, a publication and a blog? Um, 
Uh, and then I'll jump over to launching new ones, which I'm also really curious about because not a lot of companies have sort of, you know, multiple uh, blogs or, or sort of hubs of content that they publish through. And I'm assuming that they can sort of touch on different areas or um, business units, maybe that they want to, uh, that they want to speak to, but first on the growth, like growing a blog is a little bit different than growing a company or is it? It's a good question. I think it, so at least with how TopTel set up the publications and I can't speak to everything, but at least at a high level, they were set up for business units, right? So TopTel, it was a network of um, talent. And so we had developers, designers, finance experts, and they all had a publication associated with them. And the publication served multiple different benefits as all publications do in that they are some form of thought leadership, right? So you actually like convince people if you're writing about the right things that you know what you're talking about like for you know someone um at a like a tech company their publication is going to be at least vaguely you know uh relevant to whatever their product actually serves so that they look like experts in like payments for example right so that's one Mm -hmm. thing it serves um that kind of expertise but it also fuels a you know these are online businesses all online businesses, if you do um, your publication effectively, are serving a huge SEO benefit, not just in terms of traffic, but elevating every single other page on your site um, through that domain authority. And so that was another kind of clear benefit of the publications as again, all publications, if, if they're done right at these companies. And so scaling a publication, I wouldn't say is the same as scaling a company because with a company you're focused on, um, I guess at the beginning, like just establishing relationships, refining your product. By the time you're actually launching a publication, you should have a really core understanding of who you're trying to reach and Mm. what you're trying to convey to them. Um, Because if you don't, you're going to not only fail in establishing that thought um, expertise, but also in ranking in the right places and bringing in the right links. So I think it, it's maybe not so different in terms of like the way you scale, but in terms of like where you are, you should have a really deep understanding of your, uh, like who you're trying to reach and what you're trying to say with your, you know, with your publication, if you're launching one. Yeah. Was there anything surprising about the content that you would produce or the growth of some of the publications, um, whether that's through, I don't know, tactics that worked or content that hit and, you know, was shared or went viral or, or just things around the process of launching or growing that surprise you? I think um, I can't speak to certain tactics, but what I would say is like the one piece of advice for all and this is true again, not just with TopTal, but with my personal blog, with most publications, most people focus too much on social channels. Um, so they're like, okay, let's get our, you know, our Twitter followers to engage with us. And if you are a company, it's very, very hard to get a thriving social following. People like following people, not companies. Now, the underrated area that a lot of people you know, kind of punt until later is SEO. And so if you're if you're doing a company publication, you can focus on social and other stuff to some extent, but focus on building up your domain authority and ranking for the right keywords, train your team on SEO. And that is, that is really like the engine that you should be focusing on. Hmm. Okay. So now getting more towards the present, we're almost sort of uh, backed into where you are today, but um, from top tell you went to the hustle and uh, the hustle is, is sort of, I feel like in a lot of ways, sort of the opposite of a lot of the sort of the, you know, billion dollar unicorn tech companies, right? It's a, it's a media company, essentially. Um, it's bootstrapped, right? So what drew you to the hustle? 
I think, so I'd been following, I had been reading The Hustle for a while and their voice resonated with me. It's also within tech, which I find interesting. And I think it was the opportunity to get involved with trends. So Sam had actually reached out earlier in 2019 about joining and in a general, I think, growth role. And we talked about it and it, I think he actually wanted someone in the office at the time. It just didn't end up working out. Um, but then he reached out again and he was basically like, look, we're launching this thing called Trends. It's XYZ, like you'll be able to be a big part of this. And that was really what resonated with me. For me, what I've learned over clearly switching like careers and companies and all this stuff several times is that it's less about exactly like what you're putting on your LinkedIn or like this idea of some costs or anything. It's really like, what do I want to be involved in now? And the things that you should consider if you want to, mm. if you're trying to assess whether you want to be involved in something are less so about like money and like, you know, things like that, your title again, it's more so who am I going to be working with and what am I like, literally what am I going to be doing day to day? And does that excite me? And normally if something excites you, it means that it's the right balance between like, you're going to learn a bunch, but you're also like in a place where you can thrive. And so to me, trends was exactly that. It's like, I know how to do this, but it's also super exciting. And I get to work with a bunch of people who are probably smarter than me. And like, this is so, like, again, super exciting. And I think that's really how people should gauge what job offers or what things they, you know, pursue, because I mean, everyone says this, but not a lot of people actually act on it. You spend so much time working like do not optimize yeah. what job you take for your job title. Again, for trends, I ended up technically taking a step down from leading a 20 person team to being an individual contributor, but it was so much more exciting for me and I've learned so much. And now I'm actually even better positioned to do a lot more. And so I think that was really it. I was just, when I heard what they were building and how I could get involved there, it was like an, a no brainer for me. Yeah. What, what were you doing day to day? Um, I know there were reports involved and there's a lot of research involved. I believe for the trans product for a while at least you were creating, I know cause I'm a trends customer. Uh, and so I've seen some of the sort of um, reports because I don't know exactly the nomenclature uh, that you've produced, but uh, what was a day to day that you were doing? I mean, it was all over the place because for a long time trends was, well, at first it was two analysts and then it was the other analyst went for another role somewhere else and it was just me for a while writing mostly. So it was whatever the hell I wanted to write about, which was awesome because it was anything from like interviewing people in our community who had insights on specific spaces to just going down these huge rabbit holes and just coming out with like everything that I thought was interesting and other people hopefully would too. And I remember one of our newer analysts uh, Ethan, who actually used to work with that top towel, he, um, he, I was like asking him how his, the job was going a month or two ago. And he was like, honestly, like, it's awesome. Like, I can't believe I get paid to do this because it's literally, again, things that I would do maybe not for that many hours in a day, but I would go down these internet rabbit holes myself and I would engage in these communities myself. And I would love learning about entrepreneurship and how these companies grew and throwing this data into a spreadsheet and analyzing it. Like I would do all these things anyways, um, but we we're just getting paid for it. And the amazing thing about trends is that Sam and Brad, who's the head of editorial, have always given analysts like just almost complete autonomy to write about whatever they want because they've selected the analysts in such a way that they trust their judgment. And so really day to day, it was again, all over the place. As long as I had a newsletter to send, by that Tuesday, and then I could spend my time doing whatever I wanted. What, what was, um, like, walk me through the process of 
creating one of those uh, reports in particular about like, let's just say you're focusing on a, a particular company who grew. And so you're looking at the market, you're looking at the product, you're trying to do research on the company. Like what was sort of the start to finish process you would go through to produce something that you could send on a Tuesday morning? Yeah. So I think a lot of people think that the hardest part of writing like a report or what we call a signal are like, is the process of actually writing it. And that is actually not in the minority necessarily, but a significantly smaller chunk than people think. Most of your time goes into, again, these like internet rabbit holes of trying to ascertain whether something is interesting. And that sounds super vague, but it's super critical. And that's how we hire as well. Like when we bring on new analysts, it's, do you have an eye for understanding what is interesting to people or not? What is unique? What is not going to be on the front page of TechCrunch? Can you actually source those stories through your own independent means? And we can train you in some ways on how to do this, but also can you like come back to us and say like, these things are interesting. These things are actually not that interesting. And so most of your time goes into finding these stories, potential stories. And then we use like a, like we have a list of like dozens of resources um, of data resources that we use to supplement stories, whether it's like simple public things like Google Trends or Ahrefs backlinks or anything like that, um, App Annie for app downloads. Think, like there's so many um, different tools that you can use. And so getting the data in first, and then um, normally if needed, we'll obviously go down internet rabbit holes, but we'll also, uh, one of the benefits of trends now is pinging the community. Because most of the time, if you're like, oh, I'm gonna be writing about like, uh, for example, I'm trying to think of one where we actually tapped someone in the community recently. But for example, we talked about like male makeup recently. I bet you mm. anything, someone in that community knows a lot more than we do about who the players are, like the margins, all this stuff. Um, and so that's one of the kind of, again, benefits and something that we, we typically loop in now um, to make our stories better so that we get things that, again, only insiders in, in the space can actually access. Yeah, that's fascinating. How how did the um you mentioned that things have changed a little bit with the actual like trends product? How has that evolved since you've been there? Yeah, so I mean, it's just even from there's there's two things that I'll call out. The actual newsletter itself has changed a lot, and I think for the better. So at the beginning, we were writing, um, it was well, one a lot less organized, but we were also if our kind of flagship thing now is signals, which is similar to other products like exploding topics and glimpse. But when we first started doing signals way back last year, they were like two sentences and it was just like, Hey, like, have you heard of like L-theanine? Like pretty cool, huh? <laughs> which we've done a lot more since, um, to actually research the thing. And normally we'd have like, what is it? Why is it interesting? A couple paragraphs on that. And then what's the opportunity? Like, if you want to get in on this, here's what you can do. And so, yeah, our, our newsletter is a lot more organized and just a lot more thorough, a lot more deeply researched and better, I would say. And I, I say that as someone who is not writing anymore, other people are doing this work. And so yeah. that's one thing, but then the product overall in terms of its feature set has also grown. So we've always been a newsletter, but we, I think early on tacked on a community, which has grown and actually become a lot of people's favorite uh, feature of the product. Um, we've also added uh, what we call these like expert lectures. Um, we only call them lectures because again, webinar has kind of like this, yep. <laughs> this strange connotation. Um, and so we bring in people who are great at anything from again, SEO to like YouTube marketing to like diversity and inclusion, like any topic that would be relevant to entrepreneurs. We bring in experts. We do these sessions either. Um, they were weekly for a while. Now they're bi-weekly um, and we're running other types of events like mixers now 
And then we have some other features, like we have some eBooks, some uh, databases that people can use. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting one of the key features, but also we just have from the, you know, Trends was started a year and a half ago, maybe more now actually. uh, And we have this library of all of the signals, all of the deep dives available on the site. Um, So basically now, if you go to Trends and you're interested in pretty much anything, there's probably gonna be a piece on it. When you're adding new feature sets or uh, sort of benefits, perks to the membership, uh, like you mentioned, the databases and uh, the lectures, right, from guests, like how are you deciding what to add in? Is that coming from the community? Is it coming from just brainstorming ideas internally, seeing what other people are doing? It's a good question. Um, we, It's always some combination of the above, but I think one thing that we really try to um, tie back to always is really understanding who our core user is. Um, So we have four different user personas and we have one core one. And it's really easy. The reason I say this is really important is because it's really easy to get lost in like one customer says, hey, I'd really like, you know, another database on this. Or I'd really like if we did events bi-weekly or, or, you know, like every day. And we're like, oh, that sounds great. But it's like one customer. And like, we need to I think one of the things as companies overall, and I've experienced this across many of my roles, is like we need to be able to see through the noise and see what really matters to the most people. And not just the most people, but again, our core users, who are we really trying to attract? Um, To give you an example, like one of the things that some people love is signals or these flares of like little ideas that, um, you know, are super interesting. Well, that's great for some portion of our users, but if you're running a company, you may find this stuff interesting, but seeing these new ideas of businesses that they can launch is actually not that useful to them because they're busy running business. So we need to make sure, okay, if our core users are actually people running businesses, then how do we continue keeping them involved? And I guess this is kind of a a convoluted way of saying that we do take feedback from our users. We do try to um, listen to them and do surveys and all the stuff that, you know, most companies do, but we really try to at least attempt to think from first principles, like, okay, what current features do we have now? Who is our user? And then like, what does that person need? And is that being addressed with our current features? Yes or no. And then if no, how do we, you know, expand that? But right now, one of the things that's really important to keep in mind is the biggest focus for us right now is actually an existing uh, feature, which is our community, because we're Mm. just seeing so much growth right now and communities just start to disintegrate after a while, if they're not addressed properly. And so there's also the balance of not just new features, but how do you make sure your existing features are up to par? And right now that's actually more of a focus for us than launching anything new. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So what is, um, I want to get into sort of growing trends, but like, what does your day-to-day look like as sort of like the head of trends, the head of product? It's all over the place because our team is admittedly small. So it's anything from working with our couple uh, growth uh, people on acquisition channels. It's anywhere from actually like combing the backlog of product features or site features that we want to create. It's working with our CX team to make sure like, what are the issues? How do we fix them? It's planning promos like Black Friday. It's um, like still pretty involved in the actual editorial stuff, not writing myself, but like supporting that team, giving them feedback. Uh, We recently launched an audio version of our newsletter. So it's like coordinating that, Mm -hmm. uploading, like I'm really, even though I'm technically (laughs) leading the product, I, as I like to be, am very much an individual contributor. So it's all over the place. Um, I'm kind of like the, if it doesn't 
fall in someone's role, it falls in my lap, um, right. which I have a lot of fun with. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. So what, what is it? Um, uh, I, I found myself again with swipe files, like sort of wondering, we had a, a brief conversation, um, earlier about it, but like a membership site or like, how, how do you categorize what transcends first of all, like, do you call it a membership site? Do you call it a community? Do you call it a newsletter? All the above. I don't know, because that's something that we actually have really um, not struggled in the sense that we haven't you know, been able to acquire people because of this, but in really nailing the branding or like the description of trends has been really hard. And we've iterated a bunch because I think the reason, the key reason that it's been hard is because it really is a little bit of a new category. Um, we've actually yeah. tried to work with certain contractors on things like copywriting emails. And the issue that we've run into is that they kind of, when you we think of the existing um, product types that, it, you know, outside of trends and you try to figure out where trends fits, it ends up falling into these kind of like courses, get rich quick type schemes where people are like, oh, like you want to build a business, I'll show you how to build a business. You want to like, you know, make money online, I'll show you how to make money online. And that's not what we're trying to achieve with trends. There are overlaps where like we have seen a lot of people build successful businesses and we have seen people um, use our tactics to improve their businesses. But that like that whole get rich quick money thing is not what kind of the lane we want to be in. So it's been really hard because there's not really an adjacent lane of like, oh, what's the high quality place where you can meet other internet entrepreneurs? That, I guess, product definition had, didn't exist before trends. And it's interesting because trends started mid last year and we have seen a lot of, I don't want to label them necessarily as copycats because they're all doing you know unique things in their own rights. But this, again, this product category of things like this is starting to exist. And I don't actually know what you'd call them, right? Like, like if you were to yeah. describe to someone like, oh yeah, there's this like range of products, like trends and glimpse and exploding topics and all these, these sites, like, what are those? I don't know. Like, trends <laughs> products. <Yeah. laughs> like, I don't, I really don't know what you'd call them. So it has been hard to get the the messaging right for them. Um, because I'm, I'm really not even like internally, we're not sure sometimes, even when we work with things like, like a podcast sponsorship, how, how they articulate what the product is. Mm, right. Yeah. Cause it, it is important. Like, um, a membership site doesn't really do it justice, right? A newsletter doesn't really do it justice. Um, uh, a database of um, reports and or just, you know, raw data doesn't really do it justice either. It's sort of the combination of it all. Um, so are, are you leaning on sort of like being able to show like an a la carte, you know, like, hey, if you're interested in this, you can buy into or you can subscribe so that you can get this one feature or, you know, we have these other three things or what is the what is the way that you sell trends as a product? So we've talked about it and we actually did a test where we sold only the newsletter and it it worked kind of well. But what we found is actually that um, kind of similar to what I was talking about before, you have people who are you know, some people are operators, some people want to be entrepreneurs, some people are investors, there's all different types of personas. And sometimes people actually move between the two or kind of like a, a hybrid of them. And so if you try to just sell one feature, I feel like you're not kind of giving people the option to have more of that flexibility of like, oh, one day, you know, at the beginning, maybe I want to learn about trends, but then after I learn about a trend and want to build business, then I really need community, or maybe I need the database, or maybe I need something else. Um, or maybe my business, I was running a business and it failed, and now I need to go back to the drawing board. So really now I need, um, you know, the information. And so we did some tests, but right now we're focused on it just being an all-inclusive subscription because we do feel like it's mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, the greater 
what's that saying where it's like things are greater than the sum of their parts. So it's like, you know, it's right. like one thing is worth one, another is worth one, but together they're worth three. Um, and so I think that's really what trends is, is like. And, but to answer your question more specifically, we tend to, where we've recognized similar to the conversation that we had before, we've recognized that people come in for information. That is something that people can easily put a price point on that they understand they're used to, at least to some extent paying for in some way, shape or form. Um, and then they experience the community as part of the subscription and then they end up liking the community more but we really have struggled to just sheerly you know advertise the community and have that be uh, enough mm, right it's the um yeah that the saying is uh the sum of its or the sum is greater than no i just lost it yeah. but <laughs> no it's funny i had the same <laughs> the same experience as i was trying to say i'm like it's close, but uh, it's close. Yeah. But, um, but either way, right. People, there's also the saying, um, people come for the content and they stay for the community. And that's yeah. such a interesting dichotomy of how you sell it and how you market it. Um, but what is it like when you're thinking about growth and you're thinking about, uh, the marketing and sort of leading the growth team, especially on different acquisition channels, um, how would you say that someone or like what's been the overall strategy for growing something like trends, right? However you want to call it, whether it's the all month subscription, membership site, community, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it's a complete mixed bag of channels, which is what I think, you know, a, a good marketing team will do. They will diversify. And so it's everything from, we, you know, have people who hear natively or naturally about trends. Um, but we also have, you know, this, this, big hustle lists that we are actively growing as well. We work with, you know, influencers of different sorts to, you know, within the space, if, if you're an entrepreneur or an aspiring entrepreneur, who do you listen to? We work with those people. We obviously have certain paid channels that generate um, revenue for us. Um, it's a complete mixed bag. We have, it's, it's a kind of a running joke. We have what we call funnels, which are basically just like different channels and the way that we, we track attribution. And we're, we're always just like joking, like, when are we going to hit like funnel 90 or whatever, which obviously we're very far <laughs> away from 90, but we're always like, Oh, like another funnel, like, here we go. Yeah. Um, and so, I, and, and again, I think that's how a good marketing team works so that you're not dependent on like, Oh, if like Facebook costs get too high, like we're screwed. And so that's been really nice. And we've tended to see that like, sometimes we'll go like all in on one channel. Like at one point we were spending a lot on Facebook, but our best days in terms of like conversion rate and everything else is really when we're diversified and we're not again, like too dependent on one specific channel. Hmm. I know, I know a lot of the, especially early interests came from uh, the hustle newsletter sort of more, more broadly, more generally. Um, would you say like if someone, for example, was starting something like trends, maybe in another space, right? Where if it was like, let's just say marketing for me, for example, right? Would you say, oh, go focus on building like a massive email list with more broad interest and then try to siphon off? Or do you think that it's possible to grow a product like trends independent of a big newsletter like The Hustle? It's a good question. I mean, I've seen someone in one of the chats I was in recently wrote this article, which is basically like arguing, like, don't build an audience. And I disagree with it. But there is an argument for both where like the idea is like an audience is just part of this greater marketing funnel. And if you don't believe in the marketing funnel, like then it's it exists like, like it, it exists. It just the the I guess the width of the funnel is what matters or like the the layers of the funnel change. But the idea that you're always going to have people who are either further along in intent or 
or less further along in intent uh, with your product. And it is your job either to identify if you can, the people who are close to purchasing. And if you can just segment those people very well and access them, perhaps you have, you have a product that has super high intent because people are already actively searching for this. Well, maybe then you don't need to create a massive email list and you can just run some AdWords ads and build a business off of that. That is possible. However, that is super rare that you're able to build a a business or a product that has such a clear need for it in which people are explicitly searching for it. And in that case, if you can't do that, it's like trends, we talked about how it's this kind of strange, little bit awkward product category. Well, then you need to start widening your funnel. You start to need to do things like free trials. You need to give people the opportunity to experience something and realize that they have this problem that you're addressing. And so I think it really depends on, again, like the, the, like, degree of intent that someone has and whether there are channels that exist that are able to capture that intent for your product in particular and the problem that you're solving. And I would say that most channels or most companies or people can benefit no matter what from growing some sort of larger audience that they will later convert. Mm. Yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about uh, Black Friday when you guys did it for Black (laughs) Friday for trends. Um, There's been an interesting discussion, you know, around uh, who should do Black Friday, Cyber Monday deals. Is it good for just for e-commerce? Can you do it for SaaS? Again, with a something like trends being sort of like a combination or uh, amorphous kind of thing, uh, you guys did it. Could you walk me through what the Black Friday offer was and how it went? I mean, it went super well. It was, I give a lot of credit to Sam. He, so we had this big plan as in like, I had coordinated this big document and assigned people roles and, you know, we do stuff on social and these email opt-ins and all this stuff. And we were really expecting far less than what we ended up bringing in um, from even just the first day, because Sam kind of, as you heard on the My First Million podcast, I'd heard of this tactic from, um, I think originally Brooklinen or maybe before that Chubby's, there's a bunch of companies that have done it before. And they basically send this email that's, it's kind of like a whoopsie email where someone is messaging their marketing team and is like, okay, we've got the sale ready, but it ends up going out to everyone. And it's an intentional mistake. Um, but we did that. So Sam messaged me that day and was like, Hey, I heard of this thing. Like, let's run it. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And like within hours it was sent and it just went crazy. People started sharing it in terms of not just, Hey, look, trends is on sale, but like this is like an awesome marketing tactic. We had some people internally because it was so sudden between like when Sam came to me and when we executed it, that a lot of people in the company didn't even know we were doing it. So they were like, Hey, <laughs> like, did you mean to send this? And of course we did, but um, yeah, that's what we ran. And then of course, later in the weekend, we started to run more traditional promos um, through our email marketing lists and also um, you know, on our site, the classic on social um, the very classic approach that many companies engage in. Um, but yeah, we were super shocked and it, it went way better than, than we really could have ever expected. But I think it, it shows that the, kind of to the question we were talking about before, if you build up a big like funnel of awareness that makes something like this work, if you just mm. like release some offer like this into the, you know, just like this, like black hole that no one's listening in, then it doesn't matter. It won't work. And the reason that this works so well is because we spent the last year or so really, really like uh, kind of spreading the brand awareness of trends. So that when we drop something like this, a lot of people are like, Oh, I know trends and I've been meeting to buy. And like, I'm just going to jump on this now. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take a step back and, um, 
sort of like the in parallel to a lot of your different career moves and pivots and uh, different roles, you've been doing a lot of personal writing and, and blogging online. Why did you originally start writing? Yeah, so as I've mentioned a couple of times in this, uh, I really don't consider myself a writer, maybe a little bit more now, but I I only started writing personally because I had something to say. I view writing hmm. now as a tool, um, just like speaking as we're doing right now. It's to convey certain things, to tell stories, to, you know, teach someone something. Um, so the same thing with writing where it's, you know, some people view it as like their profession and those people are much better writers than I am. But for me, for me, it's really just, I got to a point where there are certain topics, certain things that I had learned about that I really wanted to articulate to other people, certain points that I wanted to make certain opinions that I had. And sure, I could have recorded a podcast. I could have, you know, tweeted all about it, but some of these things really, I had thought about them enough where I had so much to say that I was like, the only way that I can really articulate this in the way that I want to is through the written form. And that's the only reason I started blogging. And then of course, after I started doing that, I started to recognize, okay, this, you know, maybe a lucrative way to build up an audience and to really engage with more people and reach more people and teach more people things. But at the beginning, it was really just a tool for me to say certain things. Mm. I, I know, especially for myself and a lot of other people, they might not feel um, comfortable or confident writing. You know, I don't think a lot of people identify as a writer, quote unquote. Um, how did you like learn to write and uh, sort of adopt it as something that you did on a regular basis? Yeah, so I think I really, especially in high school, I wasn't a horrible writer, but I was really not a great writer. But the difference there is that most of the time when you're writing, as at least early on, is you're writing about things that you do not care about. And in fact, most of the time you actually like actively dislike right. and you're graded in such a way where there's like a very rigid form of what is good writing and what is not good writing. And I think actually it's really important for people to unlearn a lot of that stuff, not like, you know, grammar necessarily, but things like, oh, every article must have like an introduction three, three points and, and then a conclusion um, that you learn in like essay writing. All that does not matter. Again, I think it's really important for people to unlearn that and relearn this concept that writing is just a tool, right? So there's incredible tweets that are one sentence long that convey a message um, in such a way that it's incredible writing, even though it's just one sentence. Um, and so I think if people don't feel like they're good writers, I would encourage them to do one thing. One, just like revisit the fact that however you likely learn to write is perhaps not actually representative of your ability to write in other contexts. But two, like writing is something that, and I, I wrote an article about this, it's it's really a form of expression. And if you are struggling to write well, probably means that you're struggling to like actually think about this concept mm. effectively. Once you really, really distill down like what you're trying to say, um, then normally writing actually comes relatively easily because it's the same concept as if you're struggling to convey a concept. Like if I was trying to teach you something right now and I was struggling with it, it's probably because I haven't really, really, really understood the concept myself. And as soon as I get it, then it, it just flows, right? When I'm trying to teach you or someone else. And the same thing is true with writing. Once you get past essay writing and all that stuff and you really understand a concept, it's, I think, a lot easier for people to write effectively. And the reason I say this as well is because um, like I... I worked with so many people at TopTal, for example, and elsewhere that were not native English speakers. And so their writing from like a purely technical perspective may have not been good, but from it, their ability to tell a story or for people to actually want to engage with this mm. thing, 
it was amazing. And, and so that's why I say you don't necessarily need to even be a native English speaker to be a good writer um, in this context. And then um, the final thing I would say is that one thing that really helped me, and this was, I was lucky that this happened at TopTel, which was right before I launched my own stuff, is that as a leading a publications team, your job is really to critique, right? So, so you get mm. um, a bunch of people submitting their pieces and you critique it and you critique it from, uh, again, not the perspective of like, is this perfect grammar or is, is this a certain structure or whatever? It's as a reader, would I be interested in reading this? Would I get past the first paragraph? Would I, did I, would I learn something? Would I want to return to this publication again? And I would encourage people writing just like chess, just like all of the other skills that we mentioned through this call are things that you can, you can get better at. And I would encourage people if they are um, struggling to write themselves, just have this kind of like layer in your brain as you read things where you're like, huh, like, why do I love this article, right? Like, why, why did I really enjoy this? Is it because of like X or Y, or why, why did like, I read two sentences of this article and bounce. And you start to train your brain to actually pick up on what effective or persuasive writing looks like. I think that's such a really, I mean, for anything, uh, for any article that you read, any ad that you click on, any product that you buy, any person that you have some sort of affinity towards. If you just take a step, a step back for a brief second and you just think like, why, why was that like compelling or like resonating to me? You can really start to pick apart and, and sort of do some reflecting that really um, gets into things that no one else talks about or that like you don't even realize yourself of like, oh, this is what makes an interesting lead into an article or like these are the type of images I like to click on, right? Or um, these are the type of people yes. or it's, it's this one particular thing about this person that I like that makes me, you know, click the follow button and or engage with their tweets, uh, et cetera. Exactly. Um, I would just tag on there and do this for everything. This is one of the things that I encourage people to do, especially if they they want to be some sort of creator themselves is to your point, just start noting whether it's just like, you know, in your mind or like literally writing down the things that you find interesting, the things that you find compelling, the things that you find beautiful. For example, a lot of people compliment me on, on my personal site. That personal site for a year up to building it, all I did was any sort of site that I saw that I was like, wow, this like landing page is like really cool. I would put it in this document and I would just continue to do that. And to your point, I would note like, do I really like the nav bar about this? Or do I like the color scheme? Or do I like this animation on it? And I was never stealing, like I was never copying a page directly, but just like, what, what is compelling about this? And the same thing is true with articles, with products, with marketing. Marketing especially is worth noting here because a lot of people think marketing is this like kind of I don't know. There's like a, a, a connotation around it, but marketing is just persuasion, right? It's just like mm. people and their emotions and their psychology. And how do you kind of more effectively grasp that? And so I think just really getting down to the core of learning, like why you are, have an affinity to anything will teach you how to make things uh, more effectively. Yeah. Well, what are some of the, the articles that you're most proud of personally? You have a, quite a few, you know, on remote work, on learning to code, on, uh, on traveling, on um, how to be great, which is to be good repeatedly, which I love. Um, but what are, the, what are the ones that you personally have an affinity towards? Um, well, the how to be great one is definitely the most popular one and the one mm. that one of the ones I'm proud of um, because I like that's one of the ones that I, I go back to and read. And if you ever do this with your own work, sometimes you go back and read stuff and you're like, wow, this is like really bad <laughs> or, like, <laughs> or like, I wish I could rewrite this and you can't write. Some people do that and rewrite their articles. Um, that is one that 
when I read it, there's certain things that I pick out. And I'm like, oh, I wish, you know, maybe I should improve this or whatever. But in general, sometimes I'm just like, wow, I wrote this. Like, that's kind of cool, right? Like, I feel like I took what I was trying to say and actually articulated it the way I was trying to say it. And I'm, I'm happy with the way that it came out. So that's one of them. Mm. I'm trying to think if there's any others that I'm just like, where I have that same feeling. Um, I'm just scrolling through them right now. And I think um, one of the other ones that I actually, I, I think from a writing perspective could be improved a lot. Um, and it got a lot of <laughs> controversy on, on Hacker News when it trended there, but it's the, you don't need to quit your job to make article. I think that one mm. still has like a lot of elements that a lot of people could benefit from where, uh, again, I don't necessarily think it's written as well as the how to be great one, but I think there's actually still a lot of lessons in there that people could benefit from. Hmm. What, what do you think, um, made the how to be great article so successful and sort of shared around your most popular one, like trying to do a little bit of like, you know, it's hard to sort of evaluate and critique your own work, but when you look at it and you look at other people's responses, like, why do you think that one outperforms the others? I think it's just, it's a universal theme that everyone deals with where you, it is, I think it actually has to just do with partially the way our brains work in that when you think about your own endeavors, you live through everything. You live through the ups and the downs and like every second of every day of, you know, decades. And you see all of the work that goes into something. But when you see any sort of success from anyone else, and again, this just has to do with the way that like we can only be exposed to so much. Um, You see someone and it seems like overnight success. And some of it is a little um, contrived in the way that like certain publications will have like flashy headlines, but really it's just this idea where it's like, today I learned about something that I didn't know yesterday. And so it seems like an overnight success. And we don't put the effort in like learning, oh, did this person like actually work at this for seven years? And even before that, were they working at something else, which gave them the, the you know background knowledge to get to where they needed to be to launch that thing. It's, it's just the way that, again, we're exposed to something, it seems new, and therefore we assume overnight success. And then that adds, it, it's kind of like this, um, it, it comes to a head internally where we're like, why does everything seem to just like work out so well for everyone else? And like, at the same time, like, I feel like I'm not progressing at the rate that I want to progress. I think humans are naturally ambitious. And that is why this, again, is kind of a universal concept for people where I think a lot of people just read it and were like, you know, I think your um, disappointment in anything is just like the delta between your goals and your reality. And I think um, if you're able to um, understand why that Delta exists, then you can be more resolved about it. Um, but if you haven't done the work to understand these things that like just being great takes a lot of time, et cetera, then I think you can get to a pretty bad place. So I think for this, uh, article I even noted when I first tweeted about it was a little bit therapeutic for me to write about. It's just like, just remember stuff. Like everyone goes through this and, and it takes time, et cetera. And so I think for a lot of other people, it was the same, a little bit of like therapy of like, okay, it's okay. Like I'm on my path and I'm just, you know, I'm going to get to where I want to be. It's just going to take time. Mm. One of the other concepts that you've talked about, um, I don't know if you've written about it yet. I'm sure there's probably an article in the works. Um, and if we had time, I'd ask you about maybe some of the ar- other articles that you're working on right now. Sure. Um, but you've talked about uh, sort of this, this idea of the personal monopoly um, and basically like something that only sort of the the combination of you know, what you enjoy, what you're good at, what you can teach others, um, and sort of what you can own and be known for. What do you think is your personal monopoly? 
I don't know. Cause I like getting, I mean, I think I could probably do a better job in focusing so that I have more of a personal monopoly, but I love just getting involved in so many different things that I, I don't know if I have, um, one as much as I could have. But with that said, what people tend to know me for are a couple of things. For a while, it was remote work stuff. Some people still like, you know, refer to me as like a remote work expert of sorts, because I wrote a lot about that um, in, in the early days of my blog. A lot of people these days know me for my book. But the one thing that I think has been continuous throughout the last couple of years of me um, creating things is a lot of people know me for my like ability or my choice to build in the open, um, which Mm. includes, you know, everything from like the way I tweet to my open page, which people still reach out about to um, like sharing how I do things. Even, you know, a lot of the articles on my blog itself came from me working on projects and like figuring out how to use the Google API and then writing an article about that. So um, I think if there's something that kind of brings everything together in terms of what people know me for, it's probably that. Hmm. Tell me more about uh, building in public. Like what's in your opinion, um, the right way to do it versus the wrong way to do it. Yeah. So the, there's two analogies that I like to give. One is this concept. It just helps people understand my philosophy on building the open. The first is that is actually from Sam, where if you have your car break down on the side of the road, people are more likely to help you push it if you're already pushing it. So that's the first way to understand like why mm. people want to get involved when you're sharing like that you're pushing your car, that you're, you know, if we talk about the how to be great article, you're making your way up this like mountain. Um, the second though, which relates to your question of like how to do it and maybe how not to do it is this idea where it's basically like you imagine you're already doing a bunch of stuff. You're already working in your garage It's just like opening your garage door so people can see what you're doing. Now, the way Mm. to not do it is to basically seek attention. And what that means is the equivalent of you literally taking like your workbench and putting it outside and getting like a bunch of balloons and like a banner that says, hey, everyone, like check out my project, because then you're actually deviating from what you normally would do. And that's the core with building in the open. You are just sharing what you are doing, what you already would be doing had no one known. The way that you can kind of lose out or lose yourself, or I think sometimes get some flack is if you start to do things just to appear flashy or just to, you know, show that you're building the open and it's like, oh, I'm so open and I do all these things. Um, I just, you know, I just choose to share the things that I would be doing anyway. I set goals on my own anyway. I just happen to share them online. I am going to write a book anyway. I might just share how I market it a little more openly. You know, it's, it's not actually changing your path. It's just making your path a little more transparent to the rest of the world. Yeah. That's a really powerful analogy of, uh, pushing the car and also, um, open the garage door instead of taking your workbench outside onto the, uh, onto the driveway or into the street, right. Right. In the middle of everything. Um, by the way, do you have a couple more minutes? Uh, if we go over that two thirty mark. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. Um, so speaking of building an open in the open and, uh, you mentioned, the book and building the, the book in, in open in the open. I guess it's more writing the book in the open. Um, was it was it a, a tweet that originally started that, or like what was going through your mind when you first um, had the idea to write an ebook? Yeah, I mean, it was never supposed to be an ebook, and I I actually had written uh, the outline for it a long time ago in 2019 when my blog was first starting to take off, and I had written this outline, and it was thousands of words already, and I just kind of got a little overwhelmed and was like, okay, like, I, I don't know what I'm really trying to say here fully. And I, 
don't know if I want to put this out now. And at that time I wasn't comfortable charging for stuff and I didn't have as much of an audience. And so I just like let it disappear into the internet ether and then had reassembled upon it um, this year. And then just kind of was like, if I'm going to revisit this, like I have a lot to say now. I actually have more to say because now I've worked at the hustle. Now I have like, you know, another year or so of experience with my own work. And so I was like, if I'm going to put this out there, I wanted to see if people actually want it because it's going to take a lot of work for me. And even at that time, I was thinking like much less work than it, what it ended up being. Um, And I just tweeted about it and said, Hey, like would people pay 10 bucks for this type of thing? And a lot of people were like, yeah, some people said I would actually pay more, like you're under charging, et cetera. And so then I ended up doing a tiered model, but that none of that matters other than your point, which is I basically was just like, before building it, does anyone want this? I just used you know, my Twitter audience to, to gauge that. And then, um, went from there. Yeah. And so it was, uh, 49 days from sort of the, the, like, when, when do you count when you first started writing and how long did it take to actually sort of finish and launch it? Yeah, it was that, that I think is right. 49 days. It was less than 50 and it was crazy. Cause I mean, I was working full time, um, at the hustle, of course. And that, um, was not, or it's still not at like an easy job. And so for me, it was just, I work really well under constraints. Um, because if not like literally like the world would have never seen this book, because one of the reasons that I think constraints are important for me in particular is that like, I'm the type of person where I'm like, I want this to be incredible. And there's never like any point where it it's good enough. Right. Like even today I like look, read it and I'm like, oh man, like I should have included this section or I could have improved this. And so having that time constraint was actually really, really key. And probably the only reason that book has actually seen, seen the light of day. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. But it was, it was 49 days from sort of yeah. beginning to launch. You already had the outline. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at launch, uh, you'd already done some pre-orders. Um, could you give us like an idea of like how successful the book launch was and um, some numbers since after launch, which was, I believe, about two months now? Yeah. Um, so it was super successful. I think now it sold, well, after Black Friday, it's somewhere in the 50s uh, K range uh, total. And yeah, I was just, I mean, every day now it still generates sales, even though I don't do any marketing around it or I'm not really actively promoting it. Um, and so it's been super cool because, um, one of the things that I was really seeking is creating a product that I was proud of. And like I just said, I've never, there's never like an end to like, oh, this is perfect. But the signal to me that I had done what I wanted to do was just that, um, now it's kind of selling itself, right? Like I'm not, again, I'm not out there marketing it. There's many things that I probably will do sometime in the future, but right now it's just kind of sitting online and people happen to read it and then they happen to tell someone else to read it. Um, other people tweet about it. Um, and so it's been really cool that it has become his own little marketing engine. Hmm. Why, why do you think it was so successful? Um, like I, I know that there wasn't a lot of, uh, I think a part of it, right. You've mentioned before is sort of the building in the, in the open. Um, part of it was sort of building up your audience and just having sort of a, a decent sized Twitter following and reputation within the space. But again, trying to be a little bit more like reflective, like what is it um, about the book or the way that you uh, marketed it, even if it wasn't super intentional, um, that made it so successful in such a short amount of time? I mean, I think to your point, like some of the sales came from the audience, but those really generated the pre-sales or like the first sales. All of the sales since then 
come from other people sharing it. And the only way you get people to share something is by a making sure that um, it's good. But even if something's good, you got to make sure that people engage with it. And we've talked about this before, but I spent a lot of time thinking about all the reasons that someone wouldn't actually engage with the book at every level, Mm. right? Where it's like, they wouldn't buy it, but then even if they buy it, like would they open it? If they opened it, would they actually read it? If they read one chapter, would they read the next chapter? If they read the next chapter, would they share it? Like thinking about all those things, there were so many little things that I um, really put thought into, like adding quotes throughout the book that were really easily shareable. Or the first page of the book is all about like making sure that people read it and how they should read it. Um, Making the table of contents like, super, super digestible, um, making the imagery like really shareable, um, all those things, making the affiliate program really easy to join. Those things all sound really minor, but really just reduce the friction so that anyone, if they did want to share, um, were able to. And then of course, you know, I put a lot of effort hopefully into the actual book itself and making it good throughout the, you know, like several years of experience in the, in the field that I had. Hmm. Well, what are the core concepts of the book? Like, what are you actually teaching in there um, that sort of your approach to content is different from what other people are talking about or teaching? I don't know if it's so different, but it's, it is my approach and it goes through five different chapters. It's the first is identifying um, your personal monopoly, which I think is actually the most important chapter. And actually, if people are building businesses or they're doing anything where they are in a competitive space where other people are trying to participate, that chapter is the most important because mm-hmm. without that, you can work on distribution, SEO, monetization, which are some of the future chapters. But if you don't understand how you are differentiating, you're not you're not going to get anywhere or you're just going to have a much harder time getting somewhere. And so that's the first chapter. And um, it's really about kind of breaking down the misunderstanding of the way people see kind of saturation in a space. And, you know, you ask the question, like, can you still start a blog in 2020? It's like, yes, but you have to understand what exists out there, what your differentiator is going to be. Um, And so that is really, I would say, if people are, you know, want to learn anything from the book, it's that one thing is is understanding how to define your differentiator. Tell me about uh, the 12 scholarships in 12 months. Um, Cause I love it. And it's, it's new, but you haven't talked about it yeah. uh, a lot. Like what was um, first of all, what is it, but also what's your plan with it? Yeah. So it's my latest project um, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's 12 scholarships in 12 months. I love doing things in, well, I love doing things a little bit contrary to what already exists out there. So even with the book, like there's so many books out there about content. I tried to make mine, different from what existed out there. And that was actually the idea of creating it. And the same thing with this 12 scholarships thing is there's so many people who are doing 12 startups in 12 months started by, or I don't know if you started it, but kind of like uh, mainstreamed through Peter, Peter Levels. But basically there's so many people like, I feel like every month someone's starting something like 12 startups um, on Twitter. And I was like, man, this is just like so overdone. And I want to find a way, especially after, you know, on the back of a relatively successful book to um, start giving back. And that sounds like really corny, but um, my boyfriend actually is the one who introduced me to this company, Bold. And he has this philosophy, which I think is actually really solid of the fact that like, you're never ready to give, right? Like you're never like one day you wake up and you're like, I have enough. And today, like I'm willing to give away like 10% of my net worth, right? We're just constantly in search of more. And I grew up in kind of like a low middle income household where I didn't struggle, but I 
always have been chasing more. You know, every day I wake up and I'm like, how do I build, you know, more wealth in some way? Um, And I just, through him teaching me that, I'm just like, that's like such a good point that I do want to go continue to build my wealth, but why not start learning as it's like, I view it now as like a skill similar to writing where you learn to start giving because it doesn't come naturally. And so that was kind of the idea behind this. It was like a mix of me wanting to do a little commentary on the 12 uh, startups thing, which I think was excellent at the beginning. It's just over, overdone. And also as an exercise and starting to give back. And also um, I think a lot of other people, um, also struggle to give back because they don't, you know, if you donate to a charity, you don't know where your money goes and you you don't want to go through the effort of creating a scholarship yourself, all these things. And I was just like, you know what, this is a cool way where not only I can give back in some shape, but I can also potentially loop other people in. It can be kind of like a social thing. And it's just like a fun project um, that I can engage in. And it actually doesn't take that much of my time considering that this platform bold that I'm partnering with has kind of just like streamlined most of it. I love it. That's fun. Before we wrap up, um, I'd love to take a sneak peek at your personal swipe file and maybe just riff on a couple of examples, campaigns, things that you sort of noted um, that you, you thought were worth saving. Could you walk me through a few of your favorites? Yeah. I mean, I think in general, um, I think to go back to one of our conversations earlier, marketing is all just about like psychology, right? And so what a lot of people um, try to do is they try to replicate, like just like copy and paste what some one company does without understanding like why it works for their users and stuff like that. Um, one of the things that I, I'm always, oh, sorry, train, fascinated by are cancellation flows of companies. And so Audible's is like the most well-known one um, where, you know, I don't know about you, but I have literally... I have now successfully canceled Audible after like several attempts of trying to cancel Audible, but then getting looped into, you know, their credit systems and stuff like that. Um, but some other interesting ones where I can't sh- like show people cause this is a podcast, but um, some other interesting ones are LinkedIn has a really great one. If you're la- leaving premium, they first ask you um, basically what you'll lose if you cancel, that's pretty classic. But then they ask you specifically what your reason for leaving is. And then similar to Audible, they'll bring you through a flow, but also they'll know they specifically structured it so that they can learn about like what the kind of issues with their product are so that they can actually loop that into not just like keeping a customer, but retaining more customers. This is going to also be used for um, email marketing. So one of the things that I don't see people using enough are um, Bonobos, for example, if you opt out of Bonobos, you don't just get like a, hey, would you like to opt out? Like, yes, no, or whatever. Or like sometimes you see the MailChimp ones that are like, uh, why are you opting out? Like, I never subscribed to this or like, I don't, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Right. Instead, there's is basically like, hey, like we hear you. You certainly don't want this in your inbox every single day, but um, how much, it literally says, how much Bonobos do you want in your life? And I'm just trying to zoom in here. The fr- It says like, I'm all in. I would like to receive the email daily. How about once a week? It's, uh, sorry, I'm just trying, it's really small font. A few times a month, I like you, Bonobos, but like only. Uh, it's not you, it's me, Bonobos. I need a 30-day break. So giving people options, like meeting their customers where they are um, instead of just like forcing them into like what you want your users to do. So I think in general, people can learn a lot from cancellation flows and they can also, again, use that information from a cancellation flow to actually improve their product, um, which is really, really key. 
Yeah, I love those. Those are fantastic. Um, huge fan of a lot of the cancellation flows as well. It's a probably like the most underrated um, or like underappreciated sort of parts of marketing and, and sort of the funnel, as it were, um, to keep a good brand experience and also try to save customers or subscribers or or members. Um, to wrap up here, my last question is uh, what I call my guy Raz question, which is for uh, the audience that you've built, the trust that you've earned, the success you've had across uh, all your different careers, um, and especially now with trends, how much would you attribute to luck and how much to hard work? I am very, like, I think a lot of people um, are upset when people kind of opt further towards the hard work thing because they're like, oh, but there's so much luck and I'm in a, like a worse position than you or, or x person or whatever i think that luck obviously exists but there's like certain sayings where like if you hard work increases like the service area of luck right things like that where i just really i think it comes from actually like full circle our conversation about chess where yeah. i just know there's obviously luck in life i'm also a female so i'm you know there's certain biases that i have to run into every single day however i have learned through you know, both the ups and the downs that you have control over a lot in the world. And again, I think sometimes it upsets people because they're like, well, you are in a better place than I am. And I am. There are a lot of people who kind of started the game, if we're using this chess analogy, um, as black and I started maybe as white or, um, and I'm not talking about race there, <laughs> talking about the game, of course. Yeah. Um, but the idea here is that I've just learned through chess and through other endeavors that like, even if you start behind, you can increase your you know, your luck surface area per se, and you can accomplish a lot. And so I think it's sometimes um, a little bit comfortable for people to rest on this concept of luck and why that they're not where they want to be or, you know, why other people are where they are. And I would just encourage those people to sure, certainly acknowledge the, um, the concept of luck and how it is in our lives and there's no way to remove it, but almost acknowledging the fact that it exists and that you can't control luck doing what you can to control like what you what exists outside of luck right or again increasing your surface area um and so that is my opinion is that i think i have actually worked you know really hard to get to where i am some lucks definitely got helped me along the way but i've also just like everyone else encountered bad luck and so i think i don't remember if it's from james clear or someone else that basically says like don't blame someone else's success on luck until you've worked as hard as they have. And mm. so just like, you know, as I talk about myself or as I talk about others, it's just like people got to where they are um, with both good and bad luck. And that means that you will also encounter good and bad luck and you should just focus on what you can control. Um, and you'll get a lot further that way too, because I think in general, even if we talk about like the political situation in, in the U S like you can either focus on what you can control or you can try to change someone's mind that will never change, right? And you're actually much better off just focusing on what you can control. The same thing is true with life, right? Or like your career or anything like that, where it's like, instead of being like, oh, it sucks that I'm not here today, or it sucks that this person got a role and I'm, you know, I'm going to spend the next week being upset about that, or I can focus that effort on like, all right, what do I got to do to get this next role that I really want or build this next company that I really want to go well? And so anyway, that was kind of a long-winded way of saying, I think luck exists, but people are actually better off ignoring that or acknowledging it and putting it aside and then focusing on the hard work. And for that reason, I think most of the people who are successful are actually successful because of their ability to do that and focus on the hard work side of things. 
Yeah. Yeah. They make the most of the luck that they do get. Right. Exactly. Um, well, Steph, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, sure. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Steph for coming on and sharing everything today. If you can pop on Twitter and thank you for coming on the show and let her know what you thought of the episode. A few of the big takeaways for me. One, I loved how she described building in public as working with a garage door open. It's not about doing things you wouldn't normally do in order to get people's attention. It's simply about opening the door to your garage, metaphorically, to let people see what you're working on as you work on it. Number two is hearing about her book launch really made it clear to me that the trust you develop with your audience is the most important thing. She has a really engaged audience who looks up to her. So when she wrote the book, people were happy to buy and even promote it on her behalf. Doing the hard work of earning trust at scale is what will determine the size of your launch success. And there's one thing that's clear about Steph. She is prolific. She's constantly writing, shipping new projects, showing what she's working on, and delivering value. Being prolific has compounding effects, and that's very evident in Steph's career. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.